So uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming along to the first Demystifying Media series talk for fall 2019. It's a new academic year and a new format. We're here in a uh, still being constructed uh, TV studio, but it gives us an opportunity to sit down and have an intimate fireside chat with our esteemed guest uh, today. And my guest today is uh, Matthew Winkler, editor in chief emeritus and co-founder of Bloomberg News. Uh, Mr. Winkler's career began as a reporter at the Ohio-based Mount Vernon News before moving to work for The Bond Buyer, The Wall Street Journal and others. In 1990, he was the co-founder of Bloomberg News and over the next 25 years under his leadership, Bloomberg News received more than 800 awards and expanded from six employees, I believe, when you started to over two and a half thousand in more than 120 countries around the world. So with next year being the 30th anniversary of Bloomberg News, we felt this was a great opportunity for us to be able to sit down and reflect on both the formation of Bloomberg News, but also the future for business and financial journalism as well. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Um, I'm curious about, you talked about kind of ingredients that you had, right? So some of this is, you know, right place, right, right, right time in terms of technology, demand for data and so forth. But I also wanted to touch on, before we open to, to questions from um, students, um, your kind of philosophy about journalism. So the Bloomberg way, the, the sort of reporting handbook for everybody at Bloomberg, um, the principles that are, that are outlined in there from the five Fs to yeah. being accurate, show don't tell and so forth. How did that journey come about of, of developing that, that philosophy? And, and then how indeed do you also imbue that in an organization that, is, that grows at the, at the rate you have just described. Okay, the, the short answer is two words. With enthusiasm and difficulty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, in other words, I really b believed it um, and embraced it, uh, but it was really difficult. Um, like so many hard things to do, they're difficult. Okay, why do we do it? So, as I said, I came from a place that had an extraordinary pedigree in the Wall Street Journal, um, where the quality of its journalism was pretty much unimpeachable. Um, and I went to a place that was nothing, so to speak, uh, that had no pedigree, no lineage. In fact, was openly dismissed, or he was dismissed, Mike Bloomberg, because what, again, what did he know? Who was he? He was somebody who came from Wall Street. So he was regarded initially with great skepticism and suspicion. So right away I figured, okay, the only way, I mean, it's kind of like Ray Knight, right? The only way, and all the runners that come out of here, right? The only way you're gonna win is if you work harder, you train better, your standards are higher, uh, you do everything you could possibly do to prove you're better than the best. And how do you do that? You have to have, just like the best runners here, you have to have a whole approach to what you're gonna do. And so we had to invent it. And that was the Bloomberg way. Now, what was the Bloomberg way? Who are we writing for? We're writing for the people with the most at stake. Who are those people? They're very, very powerful. They're very smart. They're highly educated. They can go wherever they want to go. They can have whatever they want to have. Nothing gets in their way. So if they're going to buy news, the news that they buy 
has to be seen by them as valuable, if not invaluable. The only way you can make that happen is if you say, all right, we have to be more accurate, more precise, faster, better, smarter than everybody else. How do you get there? You say, okay, every story, show, don't tell. What does that mean? It means you write with nouns and verbs and you skip the modifiers because it's precision in language. And it's anecdotes and examples, which is another way of saying it's all about the facts and putting the facts together. But that's not enough. Then it's wh what is every story look like? Well, it looks like four paragraphs to begin with. And those four paragraphs have to do a lot of things, a lot of heavy lifting, before you get to the rest of it. And there may not be a rest. It may just be four paragraphs. So what do those four paragraphs have to do? First of all, they have to tell you what's the surprise. Okay? And why am I reading this and why am I reading it now? Then it has to tell you, okay, why is this important? So you have to have superlatives in it. Like, it's the biggest, it's the worst, it's the best. And you have to define what that is. And names make news, so you have to have names in there and details. And then you have to have, why should we care about this? Like, why is this important? So, in other words, what's at stake? So that's probably paragraph three. And then paragraph four has got to have some voice of authority on the record, voice of God, saying, this is the way it is. So that's a lot to put together in four paragraphs. And if you're asking reporters, you must do this with every story. You're asking them to do a lot. So it actually didn't make me a very popular person in the first decade. However, people noticed. Of course they noticed, you know, and, um, you know, if you Google me, there's, there's all kinds of stuff about how um, l the people love to write about this. I didn't like the word but, or I prohibited the word but, but actually, it's not that I prohibited it. What I said was, your story shouldn't be a ping pong match. Your story should, is a journey. It should take people someplace, okay? And there should be a beginning, a middle, and an end and don't get lost, okay? So be precise and time is of the essence. So that was essentially the Bloomberg way. Now there's a lot more to it, it was 365 pages by the time we you know, got to the whatever, fourth or fifth edition. Um, we didn't have in the first decade any anonymous attribution, which was you know, unthinkable. We didn't say sources said. We didn't say people familiar with the situation said. If we had um, quotes, there was a name next to the quote. And we also said no negative quotes. I mean, you can have criticism, but nothing that is essentially scurrilous. Just because somebody said it on the record doesn't make it true. Just because somebody says it doesn't make it true. The whole point was, be precise. Now, I didn't know Donald Trump was going to be president of the United States someday. But the point is, we were preparing for the worst, if you think about it that way. And as a result of preparing for the worst that way, there was a discipline, a rigor built into Bloomberg journalism from day one 
most of which is still there, not all of it. I mean, I had to surrender a few things, like, you know, the anonymous attribution. When the dot-com boom took off and there were mergers and acquisitions everywhere, the only way you could write about them was according to people familiar with the situation. So we had to build in all kinds of checks about who those people were. What I was concerned about always is, you know, the reader is sacred. The viewer is sacred. So don't ever deceive the reader. And if you go behind the curtain, you take the risk that the reader might think you have an agenda, particularly if you're fronting for somebody they don't know or you don't tell them. So all of those things were part of the Bloomberg way. Within five years, we, we got to a point where people really did trust us because we were so transparent. Great, thank you. Let's open up to questions because uh, I'm sure lots of you have things you want to ask about, so. Um, uh, my name is Sophia Elbert-Caps, and um, I w when you mentioned a story not being a ping pong match, I thought that was a great analogy, but um, what is your best advice on how to acknowledge both sides of something in a story without it becoming something like a ping pong match? So there's a, is sort of a term that is uh, not, um, invented at Bloomberg, it precedes Bloomberg. In any story th that is any good, it's a journey, but um, like any journey, there are all kinds of caveats and twists and turns everywhere. So every story in the Bloomberg way has to, in effect, have what we call the to be sure paragraph, which could be multiple paragraphs. The to be sure is uh, we're saying that um, the trend is your friend. To be sure, here are all the reasons or facts that could possibly undermine that conclusion because we don't know where things are ultimately gonna wind up. We're not clairvoyant, we can't predict the future. We can only uh, you know, provide you with everything we know. So every reporter uh, and editor must address essentially the opposite outcome from what is being written. And you know, the reason why you do that I don't have to tell you the reason why you do that is there are lots of stories that are reported on the front page that say essentially here's where it's headed and then you wind up getting to the date and it didn't happen that way and it's very frustrating um, because it's sort of like oh well never mind well wait a second you just told me on your front page you know this is, this is the way of the world. So you have to provide in every story to be, f to be fair, to account for the possibility that you could be wrong. There's something you missed, you know, because we don't get everything. We'll never get everything. It's always the pursuit of the truth. We never give you the truth. We never will give you the truth, but we'll give you something we hope accurate. Uh, that's sort of the best we can hope for. So that's why to be sure is, a big part of the Bloomberg way. Other questions? 
please. Uh, I'm Nate Mann, a senior here. And when you're writing data stories or stories that are mainly focused on data, how do you stay away from telling people and more showing them? So uh, data is, is so versatile in that lots of data points together can become an example or an anecdote as long as you collect the data. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I do now, um, it's so much fun. I started doing it when, when, I, when I stepped down as editor-in-chief. I became a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And um, I figured now's an opportunity to showcase the best of Bloomberg. By that, I mean I would, uh, I do, I try to take um, assumptions that people have that are, if you will, in the news. You know, people think a certain thing and find the data that belies the assumption. And the only way I can make the column work or the story work is by getting enough data to provide the examples. And I'll give you one that I shared with uh, the newspaper um, earlier today uh, because it's a big subject. It sort of affects all of us, really. It's particularly relevant to <laughs> uh, us right now. Um, when a handful of states led by California and New York, Oregon was in the mix, so was the state of Washington, your neighbor, decided that it was essential to increase the minimum wage. Uh, at the time, the overwhelming um, assumption reported widely, didn't matter which newspaper, uh, and widely by politicians was that that's all well and good, but raising the minimum wage is a job killer, that um, it will hurt the economy and it will kill jobs. And if you go back to just a few years ago, even to the present, uh, you know, and you Google the subject, you'll find all kinds of people, important people, powerful people saying that, that raising the minimum wage is a job killer. So I figured, okay, this is a good subject uh, to tackle the Bloomberg way. And so what we did was we said, all right, let's look at all the states so far that have committed to raising the minimum wage, um, you know, above a certain le uh, level. So we're, we're not going to compare, say, Utah and Rhode Island um, in that mix. We're going to take more populous states where there's a lot more data. That's, so we have something that's more uh, valuable. So he took the big states, major states, and said, okay, over here we have the states that raised the minimum wage, and over here we have the states that not only didn't raise the minimum wage, but are insistent on not raising the minimum wage and say, you know, it's bad for the economy and all that stuff. So, and then we'll take all these measures of economic performance, like employment, um, the unemployment rate, creating jobs, personal income, all kinds of measures of an economy and we'll say what happened to the states over five years to the present that raised the minimum wage and what happened to the states that said, no, that's a bad thing and we're not going to do that. What happened? Um, and uh, what's interesting is that the states that raised the minimum wage outperformed by every measure the states that said, no, it's a bad thing. Now, 
when you look at it now and you look at all the data, you say, well, of course that makes sense because if you put more money in people's pockets, they're going to spend it. No matter where they are, they're going to spend it. And if they spend it, it means everybody's going to benefit, um, which is increasingly where people are going now. But it wasn't that way initially. So that's what I mean by if you have the data, you can turn the data points into a example after example, anecdote after anecdote, and then, you know, it becomes a very factual story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my name's Trayvon, I'm a senior here. I, going off data analyst, curious about becoming one or ever working in that field and business and market, do you, would you mind sharing? Do you guys use the R model or do you use Stata or do you guys use other models? Oh, we use everything, you? yeah. I mean, we have our own coders, if you like, at Bloomberg. Uh, but the coders are all familiar with just about every language. And uh, do they work directly with the journalists, or is that something oh, yeah, the journalists? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We, we're very collaborative. Um, we've always been very collaborative. Uh, there are people who start out in news who go into the computer programming side of Bloomberg uh, because it's exciting or whatever. And there are people who have been on the other side who have gone into news. Um, it's... Um, it's a personal choice, really, or a professional choice. But yeah, we, um, suffice to say, though, we're all very data-driven. And, and it's in-house. And we love data. Yeah, we love models. data. Uh, you know, it really helps us do everything we're doing. And of course, we got that disease a long time ago from our yeah. owner, yeah, who's he's very data-driven. So it's a good idea to be familiar with all of them, not just focus on one? It's, I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt, let's put it this way. But, but you know what, at Bloomberg News, we're very diverse. We have English majors and history majors and sociology majors and psychology majors. You know, we have not just economics and, uh, you know, journalism and so on. We have everything. Um, it's a big tent. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, about um, how that role, is, the role is changing across the role of technology? So Bloomberg was one of the leading proponents of automated reporting, particularly for uh, earnings stories. And I think you know, there is some disquiet misplaced in, in my view that that means certain jobs within our industry will be redundant. Um, could you say a little bit about sure. what's changing and also uh, and what's constant? And then we'll go back to, yeah. to more questions. So look, when we were just 15 people, the, one of the biggest challenges was right away, how do we prove that we are Complete, which is kind of asking the impossible. How can 15 people compete against 1,500 people? Um, whatever, you know. There, there were news organizations day one that we were competing against that were multiple of our size. So how do we show up, if you will, day one and be credible when we just don't have the horses for the course? And the answer to that is day one, we said, we can use our computers to create at our um, initiative to create stories that, based on templates that we've created, that do a lot, that do a lot of heavy lifting, that don't do everything but do a lot. So the first year of Bloomberg News, we had 50 different stock markets covered around the world 
because we could write a program that could tell you everything that's, if you will, what's what, and how's what, but not why what. Okay, now what's what is the market went up X. It was the biggest gain, biggest decline since, can do all that. Uh, for every stock that advanced, 20 declined, we can do that. We can say it was the biggest decline since, for the market, since whenever. Uh, we could say how many shares traded, you know, and that was the biggest or whatever since whenever. And so 800 words, just like that. Now, it didn't tell you why the market went up, but it told you everything else. And so for a lot of people, day one, they said, wow, you know, where does Bloomberg get all these people? And it was a machine. That was day one. Now, that was, to do that is a lousy job. Because who wants to write what's what? It's, it's like the most basic kind of reporting that's boring over time. And if a computer can do that, it's, why not? What you want to be able to write is the people who are doing things that shouldn't be, they shouldn't be doing. You know, like insider trading. Okay, that's, you, you know, news is what people don't want you to know. That's the definition of news. And so that's where you want your reporters. So I would argue just the opposite, that having computer-generated stories enables us to have a much higher caliber of journalism than we otherwise would, because we have to do the what's what every day. But There's it frees no you up to impact. Totally. And, you know, to, to bring it full circle, there are, we've gotten very sophisticated. And I just turned in a piece for Bloomberg Business Week, the magazine. You know, my editor is uh, Joel Weber, who is an alum of this wonderful uh, place, University of Oregon. He told me to say hello to everybody here. Um, and the piece that he wanted was uh, all about insider trading and examples, examples of insider trading, which I couldn't do without, of course, the computer, which could show me so many irregular things going on in the market that I or my colleagues just don't have the time to look at, but the computer catches because it's trained, it's programmed to catch these things, and then you put them all together, and next thing you know, you've got a story that is amazing. I had a question here. Um, I'm Claire Kronick, I'm a junior. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us more about kind of how you got into the financial side before you got to the Wall Street Journal. So, um, you know, I have to confess that the course I hated the most in college was economics. Um, and, it, you know, I mean, ultimately that's my fault. But um, at the time I blamed it on, you know, the professor at the time had no respect for environmentalism. And so he'd put up all these curves on the blackboard showing that, you know, trying to clean up the river by government mandate was a fool's errand and made economic zero sense and everything else. And this is 1973-4. And, you know, it was right after Earth Day is created and I'm a big environmentalist and still am. And, you know, so that didn't go down well. However, Obviously, the fact that I'm talking about it tells you something, that it stuck with me. The whole thing stuck with me because uh, it really was a year of misery. Um, in the 70s, when I started as a journalist for the United States, 
was a tumultuous decade, not simply politically, but economically. There were, I mean, the whole equation, for example, transportation in this country. Everybody drove a car back then. Gasoline, 25 cents a gallon. Um, it quadrupled in a matter of weeks. And then there were gas lines everywhere. And then it did it again. And there were two oil shocks in the decade. New York City went bankrupt uh, in the 70s. Hard to believe. New York City went bankrupt. Uh, we discovered oil in Alaska, uh, Prudhoe Bay. Uh, Nixon was worried about the economy, but his prescription was to leave the gold standard in the Bretton Woods monetary system, which ushered in a period of rampant inflation. So if, you, if I look back on that period, I was where you are, and I'm looking around, the world is turning upside down in the United States for all kinds of economic reasons. And I'm just beginning my career as a reporter and I'm saying, wow, you know, everything I know and see around me is being affected by um, money in some form or fashion. It's all about money. Um, I had already concluded, by the way, that I wanted to work for the Wall Street Journal, which was, and it wasn't because so much the business and economic focus of the journal, it was because at the time the Long-form journalism in the Wall Street Journal was second to none. And it's what every, every person who wants to write a long story, you know, at least 2,500 words, dreams of doing that. And so I wanted to do that. And so in order to do that, I had to be knowledgeable about everything else having to do with the economy and business. So I just said, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, and I got lucky along the way because the one subject that I became very aware of was, of all things, bonds. And most journalists back then thought that was the driest, dullest subject you could possibly approach. And I realized, actually, it was the center of everything. You know, when they say the canary in the coal mine, if you want to know who the canary is singing in, or not singing in the coal mine, uh, it's going to be the debt market. That's the one that's going to tell you whether things are good or bad everywhere in the world. So I realized that at the outset, and I leveraged it. So that's how it happened. Let's take a question from the back. Um, my name's Emma. I'm a junior. Um, I was just wondering, so on the Bloomberg website, your reference is being committed to integrity and in reporting. Um, what does that mean for you as a journalist? And do you think this has grown more challenging with how our news cycle is structured today? Yeah. So. Uh, over the course of my career at Bloomberg, I would get asked things like, what are the, you know, what are the three most important things to you or in journalism? And I'd always answer by saying, okay, the most important, there are three things. Integrity, without a doubt, because, and I would say this actually not just about journalism, I'd say it about life. Um, if you have no integrity, who are you? What are you? Um, why should anyone believe you? Why should anyone trust you? Why should de people depend on you? Integrity is everything. Um, you can't succeed, as far as I'm concerned, ultimately without integrity. Um, you certainly can't have a happy life without integrity. 
Um, and in the, in the, you know, we're in the business of news. What is news? I mean, another way of saying it is, if it isn't true, it isn't news. So if you don't have integrity, you, you can't do news because news is all about being true or getting as close to the truth. The second thing is commitment. Because if you don't have commitment, you're not going to have integrity because it's hard work. Just trying to be truthful about everything is really hard work that takes commitment. And then the last, the third thing, and it's by no means the least important because they all go together, is gratitude. Because none of us succeeds on our own. We succeed because of the people who came before us. We succeed because of the people around us, next to us, people we don't even know who have helped us. And if we don't acknowledge that, if we're not aware of that, it's going to be very difficult for us to get to integrity because part of having integrity is recognizing and being grateful for what enabled us to get to this point, wherever it is. So integrity, commitment, and gratitude. And, and, it, and is, it, is it harder in a 24-7 news cycle to maintain those three maxims? It's always hard because um, people are being tested on the spot and have to react on the spot. And if, if you're trained well, if you're prepared, you know, there's an Arab proverb that goes like, uh, Luck begins when preparation meets opportunity. So, uh, my name is Renata Geraldo. Um, I'm editor-in-chief of Ethos Magazine, and I'm a business reporter as well. So, I was reading the Bloomberg Way today, and um, throughout the book, it says that um, Bloomberg uh, finds itself like in uh, often difficult in the often difficult position of reporting on our customers. And Bloomberg does have some really big customers, such as like investment banks, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and so on. So um, when you do have to do a difficult reporting on one of your customers, how does this relationship get affected, or how do you deal with this relationship between customer and? It happens a lot. Yeah. Um, and it was that was the first conversation or second conversation I had with Mike when he said, I want to get in the news business. And I said, right, your biggest customer just is reading this story that you've published that says your biggest customer is not good, to say the least, uh, and is not happy. And they're paying you. And you've just, you know, as far as they're concerned, you've insulted them. So uh, that's the news business. I mean, the real news business, that's it. It's, that's what you're doing every day. Now, how do you survive and continue to do it with integrity is the question. And the answer is by being as transparent, factual um, as you possibly can. And by that I mean um, part of the Bloomberg way, certainly in the 25 years that uh, was running Bloomberg News, we said, look, you've reported a story that is saying your biggest customer 
or your second biggest customer, or for all I know, your biggest customer, second biggest customer, third biggest customer, and fourth biggest customer rigged the currency market. That actually happened, by the way. We actually did write that story. Um, and you tell them before you report the story, this is what we're going to write. Or We've already written it, but you know what? Uh, the third paragraph is yours. Fourth paragraph is yours. Whatever you want to say. Uh, and we'll listen to you and we'll put it in. And you give them a heads up. But you run the story. It's probably stories. It's not just one story. So, um, and there's the story. And then almost immediately my phone rings. And it's the head of sales for Bloomberg. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> what is going on? So a part of my job and my colleagues' jobs is to listen to every complaint, um, not to get excited, um, and then to address the complaints. Um, there's always a risk that you've missed something that maybe you didn't get it right or whatever. So you listen. You always listen. You always open yourself up. Um, and, and you explain, look, uh, we are writing, we're reporting for everybody's benefit. Um, the market is always bigger than one or two firms or three firms or four firms. It's a lot of firms. It's a lot of people. And we're writing for the market. We're writing for the biggest possible audience so that people are completely informed about what they didn't know before. And they should know, as long as it's factually true. Uh, fortunately, we're lucky because when I say we're lucky is that you know, our owner, Mike Bloomberg, got it day one. I trusted him day one. Even in the first decade, you know, there was there was one great example was um, one of our biggest customers was Credit Suisse, Swiss Bank, and you know, thousands of Bloomberg tournaments, and it was right at the height of uh, the bull market in the late '90s, and and the bank itself was getting into trouble with regulators around the world, and in the U.S. included. And so we decided we were doing this magazine, Bloomberg Markets Magazine story about all the trouble they were in. And we told them, we're doing this story about all the trouble you're in. And we took their biggest deal maker, uh, Frank Quattron, and put him on the cover of the magazine. And they told us, um, they told Mike, you run that magazine story and we're going to pull the terminals from, Bloomberg terminals from Credit Suisse. We ran the story, and almost a day later, 65 Bloomberg terminals disappeared from Credit Suisse. Six months later, that CEO got fired at Credit Suisse. Um, and three months after that, all the terminals came back. Um, doesn't always work that way, but the point was we got it right. The story was right. 
and eventually, you know, you've heard this saying, it's attributed falsely to Mark Twain, a lie travels halfway around the world before the truth laces up its shoes. Uh, or words that actually it was Jonathan Swift who wrote, uh, falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. Uh, he wrote that, I think, in 1710 for the London Examiner. Um, it's treacherous. It's messy. News is a messy business. Messy because you don't know where the story is going to take you. But if you are, if you have integrity, you have to let the story take you where it's going to take you. You, you can't not do that un unless you're in some other business. But if you're in the news business, you have to appreciate that news is a messy business. And it's going to take you places that are going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Just to clarify, I'm sorry. Um, so you do tell um, your customers that you're running the story for you? Yeah, I mean, I, okay. look, that was an essential part of the Bloomberg way. Not every journalist does that. Not every news organization does that. I did it as a matter of course at the Wall Street Journal before I got to Bloomberg because I figured, what do I have to lose? Either I got it right or I didn't. So if I tell them before I publish, I can only benefit. It won't hurt me. Um, you know, probably they're not going to be able to persuade me that I got it wrong. But at least I'm giving them a heads up and they can't say I'm not being fair. So it's a good practice is how I saw it. And we, of course, adapted it um, at Bloomberg. Lastly, because I'm, I'm conscious of, of time, um, we can't let you go without talking about 2020. There are rumors that a certain former mayor of New York yeah. might be throwing their hat into the presidential ring. Yeah. What does that mean for Bloomberg News? But also, uh, what do we need to be doing differently in 2020 that the journalistic profession didn't do so well in 2016? So, um, yeah, Mike has announced that he's competing to get on the ballots in certain states without yet declaring his candidacy. Um, to some extent, I feel like we, we sort of went through this a while ago because we had Bloomberg News and he decided he was going to run for mayor of New York City. And, uh, you know, what that meant was um, when he decided to do that, um, I, for one, went to uh, somebody I knew who was like in your position, who was the dean at, had been the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, and before that, the dean at uh, the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, and before that, he was Mayor Koch's press secretary, and before that, he was a reporter for the AP and a reporter for the New York Times and a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So he had a pretty good career, and he's a lawyer. And um, you know, and I said, Tom, Tom Goldstein, I said, um, you know, we don't have an ombudsman, but uh, now that our owner is uh, a candidate and maybe an elected official, uh, I just want you to be the person who can immediately be contacted should there be any question about a perception of a conflict of interest or anything like that. Um, and we, you know, we said right away, look, we're not going to write about ourselves uh, or him 
uh, as a matter of course. That's what we said. We just, we're not going to write about Bloomberg. And we're not going to write about Mike Bloomberg. Now, when I say write about Mike Bloomberg, we're not going to do an investigative series on Mike Bloomberg, which would be ridiculous. If he says, I'm going to have a policy that forbids smoking in public places, we will make sure that gets on the Bloomberg and people know that. But in terms of, you know, investigating, you know, what went on um, hours before that led him to make that decision, we're not going to do that story, okay? Because, you know, that is a conflict of interest. So said and done, we can do that. Um, no one's going to consider that conflicted. Obviously, the presidency is, is uh, much more uh, complicated and formidable uh, than being mayor of New York, although I, I think the experience of being mayor of New York for 12 years and Bloomberg News actually doing just fine while he was mayor of New York and we were based in New York City, uh, at least the biggest part of us, um, and we, we did figure it out. And we did it by just following the Bloomberg way. So uh, should he declare his candidacy? I, for one, think, well, that's great for the brand. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not being cynical. Um, you know, uh, certainly our name will be there uh, every day, lots of ways. Yeah, that people are going to write about us, uh, for sure. Uh, but if we do our job right, um, you know, we're going to do fine because there are lots of other stories to do than, you know, the inside story about how Mike Bloomberg figured out how he was going to run for president or what he's doing or what's going on in the campaign, things like that. Plenty of people will do that story. We're not, we wouldn't do that story, but we're not going to lose much. If we don't do that story, as far as I'm concerned, there will be reporters who say, oh my God, we've given away the store. But um, I don't think so. Um, and I think we'll, we'll, will do fine. Um, but that's not really my call. My successor is handling that. And I dare say uh, he's far more on top of this at this point than I am, because I'm fortunately quite removed from this. And it's easy to talk about it um, the way I am. Uh, but he's actually, you know, right in the middle of it all. But I, I, did, I did talk to my successor, John Micklethwaite, yesterday uh, about some of this. And I didn't see anything in our conversation that was particularly surprising. Um, I mean, look, I'm obviously biased. Um, you know, the big things that I care about, Mike Bloomberg cares about. Um, I mean, the biggest thing is climate, for sure, which is a worldwide concern. Um, guns is a big thing for me. It's a big thing, obviously, for him. He's done more on that. Um, you know, he cares about um, things like health care uh, everywhere. So, you know, I think, and also, I mean, if you compare him to he who must not be named, um, he's kind of the opposite. He's very factual, very data-driven to the point some people would say of enough already. But um, it's very refreshing to have somebody who is very data-driven um, and measured that way as opposed to someone who's impulsive and um, yeah, I'll leave it there. And, and more generally, I think there was a lot of hand-wringing post-2016 and feeling that, that a lot of the media got it wrong, got its coverage wrong, and perhaps still struggles to understand yeah. how to deal with a presidency that is unlike any other. So yeah, I, how I should I we be reporting No, 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 I mean, you, you've just touched a, you didn't realize it, you just touched 
one of those nerves with me. Uh, <laughs> 2016. Um, you know, I wasn't at that point directing news coverage. Maybe that was a good thing. I was very frustrated throughout 2016 because, um, and you'll appreciate why I say that, uh, given what Bloomberg News is. In January of 2016, there was only one economy in the developed world that had record gross domestic product, that had not only recovered everything that had been lost in the financial crisis and the ensuing recession, which was the worst since the Great Depression, but had record GDP in January of 2016. It would be even bigger in February, even bigger in March, bigger in April, May, and so on. Louder, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. There was one candidate who was taking over the Republican Party, and there were two candidates, essentially, in the Democratic Party competing. Throughout 2016, not a single news organization said the best performing economy in the world, bar none, is the United States of America. Record GDP. You didn't see it on CNN. You didn't see it on MSNBC. You didn't see it anywhere. You didn't read it in the New York Times. You didn't read it in the Washington Post. You didn't read it anywhere. You had Bernie Sanders say, America's going to hell. You had Donald Trump say America is going to hell, and Hillary Clinton didn't want to alienate anybody, so she didn't say much about the economy. But that's where journalism comes in, and journalism completely failed to say that the Obama economy, which Trump inherited, was the best economy in the world. And I've said before, Bloomberg is all about relative value. We're not perfect. But it was the best economy. But you didn't hear that on nightly news, on morning news, or anybody's news. It wasn't there. Everybody was focused on entertainment. Everybody was focused on everything Trump was saying. And much of what he said about NAFTA was completely wrong. But because he said it and he tweeted it over and over again, it got amplified. Bad. Bad, bad, bad journalism. That's what we got. No brains, you get what you deserve. Mm -hmm. All right. On that note, uh, we will uh, draw things to a close uh, for the day. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us today and for your time and insights. We really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Please join me in thanking our guest today, Matt Winkler. <laughs>